Herman and Pauline were very normal parents. And like any normal parent, the, the time after they had a child, they were anxious that that child would grow up and become healthy, strong, intelligent, and self-sufficient. So when, the, when their son was born and he had a misshaped head, they started to become a little anxious. When he didn't speak a word for the first three years of his life, that anxiety only grew. And eventually he started talking, but, but he didn't fit in. He drove his teachers nuts with his frustrating questions and his inability to pay attention in class. He hated school. And so finally his parents hired him a private tutor to try to help engage him and improve his life. Within a couple of years, though, it was very clear that Herman and Pauline's son had a remarkable aptitude for math and science. And within a couple of years, their son had surpassed his tutor. He kept asking questions that no one understood. He kept talking about things that people didn't understand. And eventually, he went on to change the world. Herman and Pauline's son was named Albert Einstein. Whose theories today, we still aren't sure we understand. (laughs) But gratefully, they kept pressing forward with him. Gail was a little girl born in not that different of a childhood. The daughter of a single mother in rural, poor Mississippi. Gail thought that she had gotten out and moved into a new future when her mom moved her from Mississippi to Wisconsin, only to discover there that a cousin and an uncle and a family friend would abuse her. And like her mom, she became a mother at 14 years old, except her daughter wasn't a daughter, it was a son, and he didn't make it. You might think teenage mother daughter of a teenage mother, never amounts to anything, but Gail was a remarkable girl. She had a a strong academic mind and went on to become an honor student. Later on, she would win a full tuition scholarship in a speech contest, and she made it her mission to not only overcome her past, but help other people overcome their pasts with hope and perseverance. And that's been her life message ever since. Oh, by the way, it's not her first name, Gail. It's her middle name, Oprah Gail Winfrey. See, these stories, they remind us of an important truth, that if you want to understand someone, get to know their story. Go beyond what you think you know to listen and learn. Because everybody has a story. If we'll stop long enough to listen, and you do too, And you have a story that's worth knowing. And when you get to know somebody's story, it changes the way that you understand them. It gives nuance and texture. It gives context. Even for me, I I was trying to think of a story this week. And one of the first stories that came to mind was when I was five years old. I was in kindergarten. And I was so excited because the police came to my class. They came to do a presentation. And when you're five, police are awesome. And so they came in at this presentation and they showed us all these cool things and They told us about the importance of certain habits in life. And they came to a point and said, do you have any questions? And we all raised our hands, you know, because we're so excited to ask questions. And I have my hand raised really high. And they they picked me. You know what my question was that day? I said, if seatbelts are so important, why don't we have them on our school buses? (laughs) And some of you are going, that's where it started. The annoying questions he asks every Sunday. He started at five years old. 
I shared that story with my staff this week, and, and uh, they said that that reminds me them of my six-year-old son, who is like my little clone. And um, yeah, he's the reason my mom always tells me payback whenever she calls me on the phone. So, <laughs> But when you understand a little bit of that story, it makes sense. Even think about our town, Prescott. You think about the, the nature of our town born in the wild, wild west. You think of this kind of cowboy kind of independent streak we have. You think about the way that fire has shaped our town and how every summer we're reminded of the fragility of the life that we enjoy here. It's impossible to understand Prescott without understanding our history and firearms. And if you wanted to pick an iconic place in town, there's not many places more iconic than the downtown square. See, these things that are part of our story, they influence the content of who we are and the content of life here. And, and in life and in scripture, it's important to understand context. I wonder about you. On your handout, there's a little section at the top. And it says, some key moments in my story include, and I wonder, what are two or three events in your life that give context to who you are? If somebody wanted to understand you, what two or three stories would you tell them about? What two or three events would you point to? What are the moments that made you who you are today? And I want to encourage you to write those down right now. I'm going to give you a little bit of awkward silence, so I'll guilt you into writing them down right now. So, See, we're in this series this spring called Overcomers. And it's a a series about how do we learn to live with hope during hard times. And while we're trying to make sense of uh, our lives and the situation that we're in, we're looking at the story of some cities and some people who were trying to make sense of the moment they were living in, in their hard time and their difficulty And what we've said about this series and we said about these churches is that what we're learning from them is this, that that our view of the end enables us to reframe and overcome life in the middle. That if you're in the middle of a crisis, if you're in the middle of a hard time, what enables you to press forward is a view of the end that gives you hope, that enables you to reframe and overcome life here and now today. And that's why this section of the scriptures that we're looking at was written in Revelation 2 and 3. It was written to a group of people who were in the middle of difficulty and adversity. And when they got a view of the end in the book of Revelation, when when they had a view of the hope that was to come, that gave them the ability and enabled them to reframe their life and to overcome it while they waited. And as we look at each of these stories, each of these cities that got a message in the book of Revelation, what we're reminding ourselves is this, that in life and in scripture, it's all about context. If you've not spent much time reading the Bible, one of the key principles I would tell you that's important is context. To not just read a sentence and then just make it mean what you want it to mean, but to read it in the context of what's happening around it. Context is super important. It's why many of you have heard Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future, which can seem like a very positive, encouraging note. But if you don't read the context, then you will forget 
or miss out on the fact that this message was given to a people who were in exile and most of them would die in exile. That's why they had to be told that there was a plan because they said, this is a terrible plan. They had to be told they had a hope and a future because they felt like they had neither a hope or a future. And so that's why it's the importance of, of reading things in context. And so I want to give you a little bit of context today about this city that we're going to look at today. And the city is called Smyrna. Smyrna is the city that we're going to spend our time with today. And in this era, in the first century AD, this is the Roman Empire. This, this map is taken kind of from Roman Empire 69 AD. So you have Rome, this is the Mediterranean Sea, and all of this kind of non-yellow land is the land that's controlled by the Roman Empire. So you have Spain, France, Italy, Greece, and then over here is what we would call Turkey today. They called it Asia Minor. And in that area are seven cities. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And those are the seven cities that get letters in the book of Revelation. John has a vision here on this island of Patmos out in the Mediterranean, and then he writes down the vision he has and the message that Jesus has for these seven churches, and then a courier takes a boat and goes from Patmos over here to Ephesus, and then he's going to go on a loop through these seven churches. And at every city, he's going to read them a letter. He's going to read them a message. It's specifically to them. So the city of Smyrna was a, a very wealthy, well-known city. It was a rival here of our city last week, Ephesus. It was right here in this beautiful cove, which was great for shipping. It was kind of a rival of Ephesus. They were kind of at odds over who was the better city, which one was more awesome. They had a, a, an Olympic-style games. It was a, a very wealthy, well-to-do city. And the message that comes to them can be summarized like this in our big idea, that we can and will overcome because Jesus has and will overcome. The big idea of the passage we're looking at today, the message of the church at Smyrna, is that we can and we will overcome, not because we're awesome, not because we have self-discipline, not because we're strong, not because they are any of those things, but because Jesus has and will overcome. That's the source of their hope to overcome. And so if you want to follow along with today's passage, open up to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation is the second easiest book to find in the Bible behind Genesis because it's the last book in the Bible. So open up to the very back of your Bible or scroll to the bottom if you're using a digital Bible. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is the shortest of all the letters that we're going to read in the series. It isn't the shortest sermon, and that's not John's fault or Jesus' fault. That's my fault, but it, it is the shortest passage and I want to invite you to stand with me as we read this morning. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to stand in honor of God's word. Beginning in verse 8, it reads, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan... Do not fear what you are about to suffer, for behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. God, we pray that you'd speak powerfully through your word, 
And for those of us who are sleeping, Father, we pray that you would wake us up, not just in our bodies, but in our souls, to the truth and the reminder you want to bring to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your notes out, I'd encourage you to follow along this morning because I'm going to have three observations I want to share with you from this text. And the first one is this, that what we believe about our suffering determines our experience of it. What we believe about our suffering, it determines our experience of it. This is in many ways a summary of the way we started this message with the story of Albert Einstein and Oprah Winfrey. See, I could have ended those stories very differently. It didn't have to become this famous, successful person at the end of that story. Many other people have struggled in school and have felt like they didn't fit in. Many other people have struggled with the ability to talk or begin to learn or converse at a young age. There have been many other teenage moms who didn't go on to become billionaires. Their stories didn't have to end the way they did. And it wasn't, I don't think, necessarily because they're somehow better people than others. I think that Albert Einstein, Oprah Winfrey, and many other people have been through suffering and adversity, and they've gone a certain direction because of what they believed in the middle of that adversity. Let me put this another way. It's not what happens to us. It's the story we choose to tell ourselves about what happened to us that matters. See, see, you can watch two people go through very similar circumstances and end up in very different places. You go, is just one stronger than the other? Is one better than the other? Is one wealthier than the other? Is, is, is one healthier than the other? Some of those things influence. But many times the reason why we end up where we end up is, the what, is the, what we believe about what we're going through. It's the story we tell ourselves. It's, it's whether or not we choose to believe that we have the, the capacity to overcome or that we're merely a victim. It's, it's what we choose to believe about God and ourselves in the middle of that struggle. And you're right now in a struggle, many of you, and you're deciding what kind of story you're going to write about what you're going through. You say, I'm not a writer. Yes, you are. You're a storyteller. You're a story maker. And you're making sense of what you're going through and you're deciding what that story is going to be. And the same thing is true in the book of Revelation. This passage begins, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but... You are rich. Now, this is the place I just want to stop right here and say, it is important that you turn your brain on when you read the Bible. Okay? Some of us read our Bibles mindlessly. I want you to read it mindfully. So if your brain is on and you're reading and you go, I know your tribulation, okay, and your poverty, but you are rich, you kind of stop there and go, okay, I think I know what those two words mean. And they mean very different things. How can I have poverty but be rich? Glad that you're asking questions and your brain is awake today. And the only way that can be true is if Jesus is talking about a different kind of riches, a different kind of wealth. It's believed that in this area in Smyrna, that the people of God, that Jesus followers were experiencing tribulation and poverty because they were being financially persecuted. Their businesses were being boycotted. 
They were being fired from their jobs because they were part of an illegal religion. Judaism was recognized by the empire. Christianity was not. And so they were having a hard time just making ends meet. And so Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are spiritually rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jews have been living in this area for over 200 years, and they were not fans of the Christians. And so what you were seeing is religious persecution between religions. It was intra-religious persecution between the religions. And many of these followers of Jesus were, in fact, Jews themselves. But they had become followers of Jesus, and they were being persecuted. And they could have chosen to believe that we are somehow victims, that God has somehow forgotten about us, that God is overlooking us, and that this is all terrible and God doesn't see. Or they could choose to believe that they are, in fact, possessing riches that enable them to go through it, and God knows and God sees. And one of the reasons that I think this letter comes to them in the church at Smyrna is that they needed help seeing their circumstances from a different perspective. And all of us, even today, we need help in order to gain God's perspective on our suffering. Because when you're in suffering, you don't see clearly. I don't see clearly. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. Uh, I'm, I'm exhausted, not only on a physical level, but an emotional level. And when you get in that place, you don't see reality well. You get mad at somebody because they're going 37 in a 35. You know, you, you yell at your kids because they're moving just a little bit slow. You turn on Netflix and your internet spins just a little bit and it's the end of the world, you know? <laughs> see, we need help gaining perspective. And one of the things that this, this, this letter introduces us to right in the beginning is that it is important the story we tell ourselves about the suffering we're going through. At the top of your hand, I had you write down a couple of events that shaped your life. I want you to go back to those events and I want you to ask yourself a question. How did those events shape your beliefs? When it comes to the most important events in your life, how did those events shape your beliefs? What do you believe that can directly be traced back to that event? If your parents divorced when you were really young, did you take a belief from that that you were the reason for that? If you had a really important figure in your life speak something negative about you, do you now have problems believing your worth and value? If somebody who said that they were going to commit to you for better, for worse, in sickness or in health, till death do you part, and then they were unfaithful to you, do you have a hard time believing the promises other people make you today. See, it is so important what you choose to believe during the hardest moments of your life. And that's what's happening here in Smyrna. They're in a season of profound suffering and they're deciding what it is they're going to believe. And what happens in those moments is going to color their entire future. That's number one. Number two. Suffering tests our ability to trust God's justice. Suffering tests our ability to trust God's justice. It's one thing to believe that God is good and just and in charge when your life is going well. 
But when you feel like you're on the underside of life and everything that can go wrong is going wrong, it is much more difficult to believe that God is good and just. And so in Revelation 2.10, it begins, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He warns them in advance, hey, you're in tribulation and even more is coming. So it's always a great email to get that kind of email, you know? Hey, it's been a bad quarter, but it's going to get worse, you know? Hey, we didn't, we didn't have enough money last month and we're going to have even less this month. And so in those moments, if you're at all human, you begin to ask some questions. When you're in the middle of suffering, you begin to ask, does God see? Does God see this? Does God know about this? Can somebody wake him up? Send him a text message, smoke signal, bat signal, some kind of signal. And then maybe the hardest question, does God care enough to do something? See, when you meet somebody who tells you they can't believe in God because of the suffering in the world, what they're saying is that, that they're asking a question. They're saying, is, does God care enough to do something? And this is the most dangerous question of all. See, when you're in suffering, eventually you'll get to this question. I'm going through hell right now. Does God see this? Does God know about this? Does God even care enough to do anything about this? When you are in a difficult place, this is where your mind goes. And suffering tests our ability to trust God's justice. See, God has to be a just God. God has to be a God of justice in this world. For God to be good, he has to be just. Just think about your own life and the things you've experienced. Think about the things that are happening in our world. God has to be a God of justice if he's good. There has to be accountability. You know, I'm married to a prosecutor. I'm a weird pastor in that sense, you know? I don't know a whole lot of pastors that are married to prosecutors. One day she may be a judge. That'll be real interesting, you know? (laughs) Judge Savage is just so cool to say out loud. (laughs) Can you imagine just being in a cell? Hey, who are you going to see today? Oh, Judge Savage. Oh, man, she's so scary. Um... But I've learned so much from my wife about justice and the importance of justice in the character of God. Because there are certain things that there must be justice for. And if you begin to doubt that God can actually carry out justice, you'll take justice into your own hands. You'll become the judge, the jury, and the executioner. You'll hold on to bitterness and anger and revenge, and you'll mete it out because you don't believe God can. This is the reason why for centuries, Christians have embraced the reality of hell. Because there has to be justice. There has to be consequence. If God's law is broken, there has to be a consequence for it. And there are some people who don't want to be healed. There are some people who don't want to be with God. There are some people who don't want what is good and there is eternal justice. And so what Jesus says to this church in Revelation 2, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. 
be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So he promises them, hey, this, this season of suffering, it has an end and it's 10 days. I wish all of our suffering was only 10 days, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like less than two weeks, you know, it's just like two weekends and a couple, you know, days thrown in the middle. Like we could do 10 days. But what's interesting is that to an audience that had a Jewish background, when he said 10 days, immediately their brain would have gone somewhere. It would have gone to the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends have a 10-day period. And in the 10-day period, they, they talk to the people who are overseeing them because they don't want to eat the king's unhealthy meat. And so he says, hey, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and, to, and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so this, this servant, he listened to them in this manner and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So 10 days in the Bible often is a period of testing. It's an opportunity to, to know the real character of something. And we know in life, you know this, that, that there's, there's what something is when things are going well, and there's something that is when things are going poorly. We have a phase for this, a phrase for this, and it's called the honeymoon phase. In life and in marriage, you know, you meet a couple and they're just so young and naive and they don't know what they don't know. If you've been married for a little bit, you have, you know that look. Yeah, yeah. And you're just, you just smile and nod at them and you go home with your wife and you go, suckers, they have no idea what's coming, you know? <laughs> Same thing happens in a job. You know, you go into a job and you're filled with all this, you know, optimism and hope. And then there's all these people walking around, you know, dragging their feet. And you're like, man, why is everybody depressed around here, you know? And, and then you realize, oh, there's a difference between what I was sold this job is and what it actually is. And you have to beware the honeymoon phase because eventually the truth will come out and then you'll be tested and then you'll see the real thing. So back to that event with those beliefs, what, what attitudes began with those beliefs? Those beliefs that you developed from those significant events in your past, how are those playing out in your attitudes today? See, the attitude that, that Jesus is speaking to here with this church is, hey, how are you going to approach suffering? Are you going to approach it with fear and trepidation? Or are you going to embrace it as the thing that I use to clarify and reveal the nature of what's truly in you? See, most of us, our feeling about suffering is kind of our feeling about jury duty. Ah, oh, again? You know, you get that letter in the mail? Ah, oh, Again? But here's the thing. You don't really know where you are with God until you go through suffering. You don't know really where a relationship is until it's been through suffering. You don't really even know what's in another person until they go through suffering. That's why I would say, if you want to know who somebody is, take them on a road trip with you. Or put them in front of a computer with slow internet. Or put them in a car and tell them that they can't get out of second year, you know? Test them. See what's really there. And then number three. In the end, Jesus doesn't promise to protect us from death. He promises that death can't 
hurt us. Jesus doesn't promise to protect us from death. He promises that death can hurt us. Now, I think it's probably a place for me to say this, and I'll probably say this every single week. This is not one of those happy-go-lucky sections in the Bible. The Bible is filled with grace and truth, and we're in a truth section. And so it's tough sometimes. But just because the news is tough doesn't mean it's good. And this city of Smyrna, it's a city that had a reputation for death. Like Prescott, it had been burned down and rebuilt. It also was associated with death. The word Smyrna in Greek was the same word for spices that would embalm the body. And so when you said you were from Smyrna, it's like, oh, you're from death, you know? Like, it was a great thing. And so to that city, a message comes about death. In Revelation 2.8, this passage begins with the words of the first and last. That's Jesus' words for himself. And he, how did he describe himself? As the one who died and came back to life. That's like Smyrna. Smyrna died and came back to life. That's the story of this city. And then in Revelation 2.10, he talks about, don't be afraid what you're to suffer. The devil's throw something in prison. He's going to test you for 10 years you're in tribulation, faithful in death, and I'll give you the crown of life. This crown of life is something that's significant for them because people who won the Olympic Games in Smyrna will be given a crown. It was a, a reward. And this is a reminder that, that yes, the, there is life available to all through Jesus Christ in heaven. But there are different levels of reward. Somebody came to me last week and said, hey, so what happens if I discover in the series that, that my heart is sick, that my heart is dead? I said, well, you don't have to fear that you're going to lose your salvation. That's secure. That's what Jesus did for you. You can't lose it yourself. But there is clarity in the book of Revelation that there are different experiences in heaven. That there are some who receive greater and lesser rewards because for some, nothing that they did in this life is eternal. And nothing will last. He goes on in Revelation 2.11 to say, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and I sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 5.5, 5, he says, Weep no more and behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Our hope in conquering the things that we're facing today is not in ourselves. This is the thing I have to remind you again and again in the series. If you're going to be an overcomer, it's not because you're a better person than the person next to you. It's because your hope is in the one who has overcome. So you can overcome because he has overcome. And you will overcome because he has overcome. And he will overcome. And I have to remind you again and again that living in this country puts you in a very vulnerable position to take your faith off of Jesus and to put it on yourself. And there are many of us who go to church who when asked, why do you have hope for eternity? It's not because of Jesus. You say it's because you're a good person. That's not Christianity, that's humanism. Your hope in the end is not that you're better than anybody else. Your hope in the end is that he has overcome and because he has, you can. And so this passage ends with this weird line. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt 
by the second death. Now, again, if your brain is still on, you go, I'm going to die twice? What? What does that mean? And this is the part where I don't have nearly enough time to explain this all to you, so I'm going to let the Bible do the explaining for me, okay? If you go to the very end of the Bible, the very last chapter, Revelation 21.5, it reads, And he who was seated on the throne said, that's Jesus, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's the reason we have Revelation today, is because somebody listened to these words. And he said to me, this is Jesus speaking to John, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So if you want to be with God for eternity, that opportunity is available. And if you say, I am thirsty and in need today, then come to Jesus and experience him satisfying your thirst. If you want to be with God for eternity, that opportunity is available for you today to secure your future. But he isn't done. He says, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Again, you can be an overcomer. Not because you're strong or resolute, but because he conquered and you are now part of his family. But he says there are some other people. In Revelation 21, 8, he says, but for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There are some people who want nothing to do with God and they will get what they want. And that isn't happy news. It isn't celebration news. But it's the truth. All of us will die. And then we will face judgment. And there's a period in between that where Revelation says that some of us will be with God and some of us won't. And then we'll stand before God based upon what he has done and what we have done. And some will go to eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth, which I don't have time to explain because my timer is about to be done. And there are some who will be sent to the second death, to a lake that burns with fire and sulfur that was not created for humans, but was created for the enemies of God who were once part of his own family in heaven. This is the reality. This is the reason why they had hope. Say, why could this give them hope? Because they once were the detestable, the faceless, the cowardlies, the murderers, the immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars. And so were some of us. I'm looking at liars, murderers, idolaters, sorcerers. And your only hope to not be in the second death is not in your own sufficiency. It is in the one who has overcome and your faith in him. That's why you can have hope. And that hope can reframe your life here and now today. Good people don't go to heaven when they die. People whose Savior has overcome do. And it is very tempting to slip back into that place. And here's the thing, though. If you're in suffering today, being a good person is not going to help you overcome. It's not going to be enough to give you hope. You have to have a hope that is bigger than your own goodness. So my question for you is this. What is your hope based on for this life? And for eternity? 
What are you banking your hope on? That you're better than me? That you're better than the person next to you? That you're better than Hitler? That you're better than name that famous person in history who was a bad person? Is that where your hope is based? And is that hope enough to get you through what's coming ahead? I'm just going to go over, guys, so just roll with me today. i got to tell the story. This guy's name is Polycarp, and he's like one of my heroes. Polycarp went on to become the bishop of Smyrna. He was a disciple of John. And when he was arrested and tried, he said this to the Roman captor. He said, for 86 years, I've been the servant of Jesus, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? It's pretty bold words. And they say, hey, Polycarp, we're going to put you in a fire, and we're going to light you on fire. And what does he say? You threaten that fire which burns for a season and after a while is quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. And so they did. They created a giant bonfire. They put Polycarp in the middle of it. And from that fire, he preached the hope he had in Jesus Christ. And eventually they got tired of all the people who were watching him in the middle of fire be converted. And so they put the fire even hotter. The only problem is, is that Polycarp's body wouldn't burn. You can read about the story in Fox's Book of Martyrs, a classic Christian text on martyrs. And so eventually one of the Roman guards got enough courage and got a long enough spear and he stuck his spear through the fire. And when it pierced Polycarp's body, the record says that his blood flowed with such a strength that it extinguished the fire. It's not because Polycarp is a better person than you. It's because the one who overcome gave him the power to overcome. And the same thing that God did through Polycarp is available for you today. You're facing some incredible challenges and fires in your life. And the one who overcame can give you the power to overcome. I've already heard some pages turning, so here's some next steps. I want to encourage you to identify two or three of the most difficult events in your life. What are the the pivotal, life-changing moments that you've been through that make you, you? And then when it comes to those events, number two, I want you to consider the beliefs that you've adopted because of those events. I want you to, to consider the fact that you may have adopted inaccurate beliefs about yourself and God because of the suffering you went through in the past. And if you have suffering today and in the future, those events and those beliefs are going to shape you in ways that you need to begin to understand. And then number three, I want you to prayerfully evaluate your beliefs about the character of God in light of the Bible. Because some of you believe that God didn't see you in that moment. That God didn't know or he didn't care. And so you've inherited an inaccurate view of God and you've been carrying it. And I believe that suffering is either in your present or your future. And a belief that God doesn't see and God doesn't know and God doesn't care will not sustain you or give you the power to overcome. And the truth of this book is that God does see. That he does care. And that he does know. He doesn't always work in the way that we like or understand. But he promises that to the one who overcomes, he will give a crown and that you will not be hurt by the second death. Yes, you may experience death, but you will absolutely experience life because of him. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.